This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. I am sitting in Long Beach, California right now for this week's episode. And across from me is Julian Schrago, uh, co-owner and brewmaster for Beachwood Brewing. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Julian. Thank you for having me, Jamie. It's an honor to be here, and I am a big fan of your publication. Oh, so I appreciate that. Let's double down that. on that fandom. <laughs> it's a mutual admiration society right here. Love it. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about IPA brewing because we're here on the West Coast, and uh, West Coast IPA is definitely not dead. Uh, we're also gonna talk about coffee beers. We're gonna talk about uh, brewing stouts because that's another thing that you all love to do, even though uh, we are here where it's warm. We're not going to talk about brewing uh, uh, wild and sour and funky beers where there's another episode of that uh, episode 103 of the podcast where we dove in with Harrison McCabe from the Beachwood Blendery side and talked about how you all have made and those beers have been so pivotal interesting and award-winning especially with our blind judges uh past beers of the year for craft beer and bring and so uh, you know but this episode we're going to talk about IPAs stouts and, and this I hate even calling it the clean side of beer because that's uh, okay. It it's is. not. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. I, I'm a I'm a heavy metal guy, and when you hit those clean notes and clean chords, boom. I'm a prog metal guy, and so when you have those clean and shimmering notes, and then you <laughs> dive into that deep crunch, it's like it's the dynamics that just you know rip your guts out. And so sure. Um, well, so we'll explore those dynamics here in the episode, and maybe we'll you know share some tips for shredding on metal guitar too. We'll see. Anyway, Beachwood has won 18 GABF medals, nine World Beer Cup medals. Um, pretty impressive for uh, you know given that this is what 10, 11 years old now. 10 years old now. And, and thank you, uh, for, for noting that. Yeah, that's, it's been a really humbling trip for sure. Well, we're going to try to dive into what makes it so good before we do that. Like your flagship beer, you can rely on G and D chillers for the same quality and consistency. G and D guarantees that every chiller they build will hit 28 degrees without breaking a sweat. They never stop. They draft, they craft, they service each and every brewery, big or small, all in an effort to build one hell of a chiller. For nearly 30 years, G&D has been committed to cold. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by Raw North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. Raw North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweetbread supported by flavors and aromas of hay, and a nutty character. It's suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft brewed versions of classic lagers. Let Roar North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. So Julian, we normally start off the podcast uh, talking a little bit about you. Give me your background. Um, what's your arc through brewing? Uh, first passionate as a home brewer and beer fanatic, and then uh, you know moving into the professional sphere. Yeah. So before I was a professional brewer, I was an aerospace engineer and my uh, interest in homebrewing was actually kicked off my freshman year in college in the mid nineties. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay area surrounded by craft beer. My parents were drinking anchor steam and Sierra Nevada pale ale when those were 
quote unquote micro brews. Sure, sure. Those micro brews. And so that was something I was exposed to from a very early age. And when I went to school in Santa Barbara, um, there was a lot of craft beer available in my area. Firestone had just opened and double barrel ale was the only thing that they were producing in, in 22 ounce bombers. <laughs> and I heard a couple friends, uh, classmates talking about homebrewing and it piqued my interest. I went home for the winter break my freshman year and mentioned homebrewing to my parents. And they said, hey, the Oak Barrel Winecraft, shout out, in Berkeley, uh, I think that's a homebrew store. Let's, let's get you a holiday gift there. And maybe I think they sell homebrewing kits. So they took me there. And uh, Homer, good old Homer, everybody knows him, hooked me up with my first homebrew kit. And that was in the mid-90s. And I brewed a wheat beer. It turned out clean. I was immediately hooked. And it was something that I did off and on for a number of years as a casual hobby. All the while being very enthusiastic and curious about all craft beer and constantly trying things around me. And in 2003, I got laid off from my engineering job in the Silicon Valley and came to Southern California because that was the first work that I could find working for an aerospace company in L.A. Being lonely, single, and kind of bored, I, I dove a little bit deeper into homebrewing. And I went to Steinfillers in Long Beach and got back into homebrewing. And then it very quickly became a deep passion of mine. Right around that same time, Russian River Brewing opened its brew pub in downtown Santa Rosa. Jeff Bagby uh, had just kind of taken a seat at Pizza Port Carlsbad. Tommy Arthur was still brewing at Pizza Port Solana Beach. So I had access to all these guys uh, that were fairly available. And uh, they put up with my incessant uh, homebrew tasting and me bringing stuff to them. And it was one of these things that kind of just grew organically. And I always thought that I would keep it as a very passionate hobby because I was happy being an engineer and I sure. was happy with the living that it afforded me. You live in California. It's expensive to live here. Having an aerospace engineering uh, salary is <laughs> a little bit better than a shift brewer salary. Probably. Uh, but in the kind of mid-2000s, I'd become discontent with my job. And I thought, you know, maybe I can open up a brewery. And so I put together a business plan to open a small production brewery. Right around that same time, my friends Gabe and Lena, who are married, they had Beachwood Barbecue in Seal Beach. They were getting ready to expand their restaurant enterprise. And they wanted to add a unique component to it. But a lot of kind of curated craft beer bars were opening up at that time. Right. So they thought, well, what if, what if we can actually just build out a brewery, a brew pub. And we know Julian wants to open up a brewery. Let's partner with him. And so thus Beachwood barbecue and brewing was born. I was more than enthusiastic to, to, uh, join their team and partner up with them. And that was my first and really only foray into professional brewing is, is Beachwood barbecue and brewing and Beachwood brewing. It's fairly singular in that respect. So this is it. This is only the, the only brewing job I've ever had. That's a simple and straightforward story. <laughs> That's there. my answer. Yeah, yeah. So for those of out there who, you know, I mean, there's always that that dynamic, and a lot of brewers will say, "Go work at a brewery before you try to start a brewery." But you know, the time frame that you were doing that, it wasn't as easy to go do that. Um, it wasn't like, oh, I can just go do an apprenticeship or work for six months and learn the ropes here before I do my own thing. It wasn't, but uh, one of the things that I, I have to credit a, a lot of people, uh, like 
like Tommy Arthur, Jeff Bagby, everybody else at Pete Support, uh, Roger Davis at uh, now at Faction at the time, Triple Rock, and then uh, Jonathan Porter uh, when he was just starting Smog City out of Tustin Brewing Company um, over 10 years ago. Those are people that gave me opportunities to collaborate with them and uh, take a lot of my homebrewed recipes and brew them on a commercial scale. It was really a unique opportunity and I, and I owe them a debt of gratitude for that. So I did get exposure to professional brewing before I jumped in. Uh, and I'm, I'm really thankful for that. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for them. Well, it didn't take you long to hit the ground running and start winning medals. I mean, they, they started coming in 2012, 2013, um, you know, when the, the brewery was only a couple of years old. Uh, I want to dive in and see what, you know, how that magic started to happen and what it took to kind of, uh, you know, especially as you got things off the ground, build an identity for Beechwood and kind of design a, a beer focus for this because it's a brew pub also, in addition to now a packaging brewery. Uh, you have a very diverse approach to styles. You brew a lot of different beers, and yet at the same time, there's been some real focus on some very specific things that you have decided to just narrow in on and uh, work and learn and continue to develop. Uh, and so I want to ask you and talk to you about some of those things you've learned. Before we do that, the world of craft beer is a different place now. Margins are more important than ever, so why not lower your ingredient cost? Craft juice concentrates from Old Orchard are a cost-effective solution for your fruit-forward needs, Old Orchard produces high volumes of their retail juice brand, so economies of scale keep prices low for their bulk supply program. A little concentrate goes a long way, and you won't lose some of it through filtering like you would with purees. To start increasing your margins now, head on over to www.oldorchard.com brewer. Also, what if you could take your favorite recipe and make a non-alcoholic version without sacrificing the flavor, color, or beer quality? N.A. No problem. The Alchemator from ProBrew uses proprietary membrane technology to strip the alcohol from the beer without sacrificing all the elements like flavor and color that make beer great. Are you ready to brew like a pro? The Alchemator from ProBrew? N.A. No problem. Email contact at ProBrew.com for more information. So you guys are deciding to start up Beachwood Brewing. Um how do you decide on what kind of beer program to build? Clearly, you're on the West Coast. IPA was going to be, uh, you know, some sort of big piece of that. Even in the late, uh, you know, twenty aughts and early twenty teens, you know, right. IPA, IPA was already the thing that you had to make. Um, you know, but that's not all you make. You have a very diverse approach to to beer here, and again, driven by that kind of brew pub uh, beer that people are going to drink with food kind of approach. Talk to me about how you started formulating what those beers were going to be and why. I've always been uh, a curious person uh, that also, as an, as my scientific sensibilities will drive me to uh, interminable revision, believing that things can always be made a little bit better and to never just think that you've arrived in some kind of final destination. Like that's that's the beer; it will never change. It can never never get better. So when we opened the pub, I, I knew that I wanted to brew a wide range of beers, but I didn't know quite how wide. And I was fairly convinced that like many brew pubs that came before us, we would have a certain amount of flagships and like these are the beers that we're going to brew and these are the beers that we're, people are going to drink. And occasionally we'll throw in a twist and do some kind of one-off beer. And when we first opened, uh, our beers were Knucklehead Red. Uh, Uno, which is a Belgian single ale, uh, Kilgore Stout, American Stout, um, 
let me see what else did we have we had a beer called punk wheat which was uh hoppy american wheat ale we've never rebrewed since that first batch <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. A, a beer that that became uh, Breaker Pale Ale, which was uh, kind of a Sierra Nevada inspired Cascade Columbus Pale Ale, and then lastly Melrose, our original flagship IPA, the B- original Beechwood IPA, and that was a homebrew that I moved over to a production setting. In fact, a lot of those beers that I just mentioned were homebrews. Started out as homebrews, got refined as homebrews, and then got migrated to the Beechwood domain. And I thought, you know what? Those are the six beers that I'm always going to brew. Those are going to yeah. be around year round. And the public had a very different opinion about that. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So that that kind of changed what we were doing early on. Another thing that changed what we were doing early on is hop contracting was something that was fairly easy to do for many, many years, even arguably decades. And when we opened in 2011, that was kind of on the heels of that hop crisis of right. 2008, 2009. Right. Uh, when everybody was overcontracted, that was when, uh, I believe Anheuser-Busch decided to abandon Willamette hops. And then suddenly there were whole, there was this glut of this huge crop that was no longer needed. So hop contracts really got very quickly adjusted tightly. And when we opened, uh, kind of the reaction that I got from our suppliers is, oh, you're a new brewery. Uh, yeah, we're not going to contract with you or we're going to give you a very restricted contract because we don't know who you are and you essentially have no business credit. So um, I had to buy surplus hops from friends at other breweries the first year that we were open. And I think I got my first Amarillo and Simcoe, the two driving hops in Melrose. I bought those from Russian River Brewing and Vinny graciously sold those to me. And I was like, oh, okay, well, we have enough to maybe brew Melrose every two, three months. So that whole idea of <laughs> us right. having this beer year round, yeah. it's out the window. And I had a couple other, uh, IPAs in my repertoire. So we started, Oh, I can, I can get Simcoe and Chinook. We can brew thrill seeker. Oh, uh, somebody just gave me a box of Citra. Okay. I've got Amarillo and Citra. We can brew a new IPA called hop jitsu. And Almost right away, we were brewing all these one-off beers, and then it became it became a thing that we did. Just driven because of ingredient availability, and then that started driving product strategy. Yes. So it, originally, it was out of necessity, and then the customer was stoked because, oh, I came into Beachwood last week, and you guys had different beers on. There's something new. I'm going to keep coming in. So it was, it was almost by accidents and just circumstance that that happened. But we saw really early on the value of having a, a wide variety of, of house beers. And it so. kind of speaks to that, even at that time period, that kind of nascent and budding exploratory approach to drinking beer that hadn't quite gathered full steam. That was still a little bit pre-untapped. You know, but there was still that kind of beer advocate or rate beer driven. I want to try, you know, different beers and that, that, you know, that scratches that itch. It totally does. And variety is the spice of life, not just for consumers, but also for brewers too. When you get to do something new and different, uh, all the time and you get to exercise that kind of creative autonomy, it is the ultimate fuel for your fire. And that I think is one of the things that 
has always driven Beachwood. It is an integral part of our business fabric, having creative autonomy and being able to do whatever we want, whenever we want. Case in point, the double IPA that we drank earlier today called Dank Brigade, I hadn't tried that until you and I drank it. So that was um, my lead brewer, Gene, formulated that recipe here. And he knew we needed uh, some kind of hop-driven beer, whether it was a West Coast IPA or a West Coast double IPA. It's his choice, his creative freedom. And he came up with that magnificent beer. Let's talk a little bit about how you develop a Beechwood character to these beers. Clearly, you know, the recipes and the ideas came out of your own home brewing. But there's a character to the way that you brew that becomes kind of evocative of a Beechwood approach to brewing. How, you know, as you continued to develop on a kind of professional scale, how, how did you start thinking about building that kind of commonality or continuity through those beers and so that there was something that felt familiar, even though you're using different ingredients and different beers and expressing different kinds of things? Whenever I formulate a recipe, I think of flavor first. What do I want this beer to taste like? From there, I'm able to back in things like what aroma is going to complement those flavors, what mouthfeel is going to carry those flavors, what level of carbonation is going to work with this flavor profile. But flavor first is what I come up with. And as a home brewer, I was able to brew any style that I wanted whenever I want. I was able to experiment with all sorts of different malts. I didn't have to just use one type of base malt. I didn't just have to use one type of roast barley. I could try the same beer with three or four different roast barleys. And so after a while, you kind of develop these uh, predictive sensibilities where you formulate a recipe on paper and you look at it and you say, I know what that's going to taste like. And when you start getting less and less surprised by what the final beer tastes like, that's good. Then you've developed that correlation and you're like, I, I have this idea for a beer. I know what it's going to taste like. And you, you hit that target. So that was, that was one thing that was really important as a home brewer, but as just a brewer in general, thinking of flavor first, that is the kernel for every Beechwood beer. Now, ingredients also change and shift over time. And so, you know, that kind of move, especially over the last 10 years, hops have gone through their own significant changes. There's certainly crop year changes, but in addition to that, you know, reduced kilning temperatures, all these other kinds of elements that also impact those flavors continuously kind of change those expectations for you as a matter of ongoing process. How, how do you incorporate and, and the understanding of those shifts as they start happening? Well, one, to never take for granted that your ingredients are, are just going to perform the same all the time. Expecting those changes is important and committing to memory uh, your, either your ideal of what those ingredients should taste like together or on their own, or, uh, you know, kind of envisioning a new target like, hey, I, I loved this flagship IPA for years, but that one key hop is kind of going in a different direction. I like it. I don't like it. How do I want to change this direction of the beer? But you, you have to really kind of sharpen your palate and your, your senses and commit a lot of that to memory. And I think, at least for me, one way that I, I work with natural ingredients is trying to look for consistency and inconsistency at the same time. 
Mosaic is one of those hops that for me for years has had some kind of common threads no matter where it's grown, when it's harvested. Um, some are, some crops are much better than others, but to me, mosaic almost always has a common thread of blueberry, almost has a common kind of dirty gym sock component to it. The in-between is not always the same. And the in-between is what we, we seek out most of the time, kind of those subtle, uh, in-between differences. And, uh, there are other, there are other ingredients, uh, other hop varieties that I think have diverged from what my memory of them was. And sometimes we embrace those changes and just accept that's how things have gone. And other times we say, you know what, that's not what I remember it to be. And I think I'm, I'm going to leave that in the past. Sure. Sure. Let's talk about IPA recipe over time. Now, clearly with Jeff Bagby and Tommy Arthur and others, you know, there's this solid LA, San Diego, Orange County kind of connection of, and continuity of, of West coast IPA. It's very pale. It's pretty dry. Um, you know, there's a kind of punchiness to it. Um, but at the same time, as I taste your IPAs like Amalgamator now, none of these taste like IPA tasted 10 years ago that, uh, you know, there is a common thread through them, but they have also developed over that time and shifted in order to adjust to where palates have continued to move today. Um, but also to take advantage of the kind of intensity and flavor forward hops that are now available to people that just weren't as available 10 years ago. Um, talk to me about some of that kind of evolutionary process of West coast IPA for you. Well, thank you for saying that. And thank you for noticing the evolution of flavor. Uh, certainly even our flagship IPAs like Amalgamator and Citraholic have, have changed from where they originally started. Uh, as my palate has developed and, you know, as styles develop, um, my preferences have changed. And for me, West Coast IPA is still definitively dry. It should always be a dry beer, much like a Saison. It should always be a dry beer. That's a governing characteristic for me. Um, having intense aroma is also another governing characteristic. Where the bitterness lies and where the hop flavor lies, that's something that I think has shifted around a little bit. And so Amalgamator is uh, a beer that is very focused on hop aroma and hop flavor and less focused on hop bitterness than it, it was years ago when we first started brewing it right. roughly 2012 time frame. That time frame, like stone becomes one of those kind of overarching defining IPA things with this ragged, intense, rough, mm -hmm. just in your face bitterness. And, and I mean, for a lot of craft beer, we've seen that happen. Craft beer it's it's almost like a kid who gets into a subculture and has to prove that they're the most subculture of that subculture by, <laughs> you know, it, it was that the new metal kid that wore the baggiest pants, you know, right. You know, it, it was, you know, the, the juggalo that had the best face paint, you know, like, you, you know, th there's that like you have to prove it by going way overboard and craft beer had to prove that it was something different because by, you know, casting itself against this idea of what of mainstream beer. And it did it by being way bitter, you know, offensively bitter and, or, you know, in a uh, high ABV and, you know, just this is beer isn't for everybody. And, you know, thankfully we, over the last decade, we've been able to find a more comfortable place, grow comfortable in the idea of craft beer 
being more nuanced and subtle and being able to explore smaller pieces, uh, you know, of these things. And that's a much more mature place for craft beer to be, Um, you know, but at the same time, like that requires approaching ideas of building bitterness in a completely different way. And, uh, you know, and like massaging and structuring these beers in a, in a drastically different approach. It does. Uh, and there is something to be said for intensity. And I believe that West coast IPA should have intense aroma and intense flavor. They don't necessarily need to have intense bitterness. Firm bitterness is, is important. Uh, but I think, Years ago, I think a lot of craft beers distinguished themselves from macros, which were known as these, which were regarded as these kind of watery, uh, insipid uh, things that you drink because you you just want refreshment. You don't really care what you're drinking. Craft beer distinguished itself by having these really intense styles, and I think uh, people realize that you can, you don't need to have this, you know, up against the wall intensity. You can dial that back a little bit and let some nuance bloom forward. And so that's kind of where I think West coast IPA has landed. And I think West coast IPA has actually also been influenced recently by new England IPA. So new England IPA in general is it's this, a bold it, statement, my friend. Well, I say mm. that I say that with, with all boldness because uh, New England IPAs are intensely aromatic, sure. very fruity, uh, but in general are regarded as having very soft bitterness. And I think there were a lot of brewers, especially on the West Coast, that initially rejected those beers. But after trying them several times, whether they realized it or not, I think started to tune into the fact that like oh, there's this idea of really in, like incredibly intense aroma with soft bitterness. Maybe I can borrow some of those components and bring it over to a West Coast beer and still have it be, you know, uh, intrinsically West Coast and unambiguously West Coast, Uh, but bump up the aroma, bump up the flavor and still have a, you know, a moderate bitterness, but it doesn't need to be a crushing bitterness. And so I think that has had an influence on West Coast beer and and has to uh, on Beechwood's beer as well. It's, it's interesting. I try, I, I tend to look at it as a dialogue, you know, that I think that these beers, you know, are and these styles converse with each other and that some of the techniques that are now used in new England IPA, new England style IPAs, you were starting to be developed by West coast IPA brewers in terms of extreme late hopping of putting all the hops in the whirlpool and then pushing a large load of that. And even bittering contributions into dry hopping where they can still add bitterness, even if it's not necessarily measurable, you know, those are things that West coast IPA, you know, brewers were working on and then kind of were thrown into a, you know, hyper, uh, you know, speed by New, New England <laughs> IPA brewers. And then, you know, and, and so it's just been this constant like dialogue and forming back and forth between those things. But the beers that we have now on both sides, I think are better for that dialogue. I agree. Um, I will also say that there's a distinctive like regional difference in, in how brewers approach thing. And, and there are distinctively different regional tastes and aroma profiles. And I think to really understand West Coast IPA, you need to kind of drink fresh pub beer that's brewed in San Diego. Uh, that That is what, you know, whenever I think of West Coast IPA, I think of going and getting a beer fresh on tap at Pizza Port. I mean, that's, that, 
that's sure, my go-to sure. right there. Like that's it. Um, and that experience of West Coast Japan, and I love what you say about that. Like there is a dramatic regional difference in these things. That yeah. same West Coast style IPA that I might drink at La Cumbre in Albuquerque has a very and and from others like Boxing Bear and Bosque and and whatnot sure. in Albuquerque, like there's a regional difference to the their approach to West Coast IPA. Um, it's complementary, but it's different. Just like when you go to Portland, Oregon or Seattle, Washington, and taste that Pacific Northwest approach to West Coast IPA. It's very regionalized, and they love dank up there in the Pacific Northwest. Sure, um, more so than than even San Diego, and uh, you know those are beautiful, differing regional kind of expressions of yeah. this broader idea of West Coast IPA. Right. Um, you know, and I, we won't. I can't call it terroir because it's it's more local, you know, cultural differences that uh, that drive interest in different kinds of flavors. But it's fascinating that those kinds of things exist. Right. And, and even when you go to another area that claims to be, oh, dude, try my West Coast IPA and you have it and like, this is a great beer, but this isn't what I have at home. Sure. Sure. And it's almost, it's almost like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure this is how international brewers feel when they come to the United States or when anybody travels to another region and, uh, like a German brewer, you know, for example, comes to the United States and some, some brewery here says, Oh, try my Kolsch. And the German brewer is like, yeah, that's, that's nice. That's a nice blonde ale. I'm not sure that's a Kolsch. And so when you're constantly exposed to things, um, in your local region, you, you develop very acute senses of, of what something is whether or not it should be that you develop acute senses of what something is. So if you live in San Diego and you drink something like pizza port IPA all the time, you know what a pizza port IPA is. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk to you about some of the kind of ingredient choices and the way that you select hops and kind of building some of these fundamentals of your IPAs. Before we do that, your beer deserves all your attention. Clarion makes that a little easier. Their food-grade lubricants will help keep your system running smooth while also safeguarding your product from costly contamination and recall. Because then you'll be in full compliance with food safety standards, and it's all thanks to a simple switch to Clarion. A food-safe system that lets you focus on your craft will drink to that. Go to clarionlubricants.com to learn more. So talk to me about how, you know, in this kind of San Diego LA, Long Beach, you know, kind of continuity of West Coast IPA, um, you build an idea of, of malt and hops to reflect the kind of crisp, dry and expressive approach, you know, to hops. Uh, a lot of this kind of harkens back to two really important beers that I had in the early 2000s. I have very vivid memories of both of those beers and also talking to the brewers about them. Not so coincidentally, one was brewed by Jeff Bagby called Poor Man's IPA, which is a double IPA. And I remember the first batch of beer that I had and the aroma uh, and the dryness and the subdued malt character blew my socks off. And then another one that I had was called Lou P. Lin, which is a play on Lou P. Lin, sure, obviously. Sure. And I had that at Pizza Port in Solana Beach. And I didn't this is when Tommy was still brewing all the beers there. This probably was around 2005 or 2006. 
And I didn't know what the beer was, but I saw it on the menu and I, I knew that's going to be hoppy. So I ordered it and the aroma just like I, I fell out of my chair. It was so aromatic. But I remember there was no caramel malt character. It was super pale in color. And I remember getting a buzz fairly quickly on it. And I, I remember asking the bartender, like, how alcoholic is that beer? I'm like, oh, it's a double IPA. It's like 9%. Whoa, it doesn't taste that way. Um, and I talked to Tommy about that. Uh, a couple years later at the Stonewall Festival, if anybody remembers when Stone Brewing built out their production facility in Escondido, they had a private party for anybody who purchased a stone to go in the Stonewall in their uh, in their their bistro there. And I, I was one of those people, but I saw Tommy there and I said, Tommy, I love to have to go find your stone if uh, if I go there again. I found this certificate recently. Yeah. Yeah. It's in, it's in a lunchbox at my office. <laughs> I, I still have it. But, um, anyway, I talked to Tommy about, uh, I, t- I talked to Tommy specifically about that beer and I said, how did you, how did you do it? And he said, oh, that was just two row malt and dextrose and these three hops. And I'm like, wait a second, you didn't use any caramel malt. Cause I had this idea that you yeah. had from reading in books that IPAs need to be balanced with caramel malt. And Tommy said, no, there's no caramel malt in that beer. And, and that completely disabused me to the notion that I had to use caramel malt in my beer. Oh my God, just dry base malt beer focused on the hops, mind blowing experience for me. And so that made me realize that you can start doing these really dry, hop focused IPAs that you don't have to worry about the malt. You let the hops take front and center stage and Jeff Bagby embraced that too. And they both had some really advanced, um, hopping techniques, especially at the time, including double dry hopping in the bright tank or server tank with hop flowers and pellets. So whenever you got a pint at the, at the bar, it was coming right off of those dry hops and it was an extra level of expression and depth. And that was something that I, I borrowed and built on with all of Beechwood's beers. So intensity of flavor, intensity of aroma, uh, their beers were firmly bitter, but they were not laden with caramel malt character and they were uniquely dry. So, um, some people have said West coast IPA is dead. What a bunch of fucking bullshit that is. (laughs) Okay. I know you were just waiting, uh, waiting, waiting to say to that. I fucking there. loaded that one in there. I can tell. I can tell. You're just, just, uh, yeah, I, did, I didn't tee it up for you, but uh, you just went for it. <laughs> so, no. so, so people have asked, uh, wh- why do you think IPA is so popular? Well, uh, it's in a lot of ways, it's almost the only style. West Coast IPA is almost the only style that has that intensity of aroma and flavor that's also that drinkable. Yeah. Yeah. Very few other styles check those same boxes. And so I draw an analogy to uh, like hard rock and heavy metal. Everybody loves a good groove and a chord driven song. Just let it rip. So now this current iterate, like the last few years of West Coast IPA, again, informed by New England style IPA, understanding how to soften bitterness, finding bittering hops that you know, will produce a certain kind of roundness, uh, to that bitterness. So, you know, because differing hops provide that different kind of experience and then, you know, working through that fermentation process to accentuate some of the fruit characters of those hops without it becoming a giant estery 
uh, you know, New England style beer. I mean, these are all tighter pieces. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, tweaking each of those elements to, to kind of find sure. that spot where, uh, where West Coast IPA is now for you. Uh, for Beechwood, um, West Coast IPA is not a yeast driven style. Our house IPA for most of our beers is what is commonly referred to as Cal Ale or Chico Ale. It's basically a Sierra Nevada derivative. Right. And it doesn't produce a lot of esters. It produces a very clean, dry fermentation. And so you don't have the yeast interfering in a lot of things. And then uh, as far as as hops go, um, I, I like... Uh, lots of flavor, uh, lots of flavor intensity, lots of aromatic intensity, and I don't like malt to interfere in that. And so Beechwood's IPAs, at least over the last couple of years, have kind of moved away from uh, like very coarsely bitter and still aromatic and flavorful to moderately bitter, much more flavor driven, much more uh, aromatic driven IPAs. I also in rough IBU terms, like what would you call that shift? I mean, where were you and where do you tend to land now? On paper, we were around 100 to 110 IBUs for Amalgamator. Now on paper, Amalgamator is roughly 70 IBUs. And usually in the lab, it tests around uh, 55 to 58 actual like lab tested IBUs. But the way I calculate things on paper is a different scale than, than what they report in the lab. But roughly the lab won't really count bittering com- uh, contribution from dry hopping. that's not isomerized, right? True. And so that's another thing I, I can speak to in a minute. Um, but I, I guess I would say from kind of the original Beechwood IPAs of yore to what we have today, almost across the board with West Coast IPA, not double IPA, we've done a 40 percent reduction in um, in bitterness in at least calculated IBUs yeah. and we've shifted those hops towards later additions in dry hopping to enhance flavor and aroma. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of liken this to, um, when you're, you're eating food and you can't taste as much if you can't smell as much. So aroma and flavor absolutely play together. They're, uh, essential together and they are mutually beneficial and, uh, interdependent. For sure. So with uh, with Beechwood's IPAs, we've we've shifted a lot of those hop additions from the hot side and the kettle to the dry hop. And that has intensified our aroma, intensified flavor and made for uh, an even cleaner beer. And there are components uh, in dry hopping that do dissolve into the liquid. They dissolve into the beer and they they absolutely contribute to perceived bitterness. Sure. They're not as intense. They're not as soluble, but they absolutely contribute to perceived bitterness. And if you took Amalgamator before it was dry hop, you think, okay, this is a, you know, reasonably bitter beer or reasonably hoppy beer. And after you dry hop it, not only is the aroma enhanced and the flavor enhanced, but the hoppiness itself, the lingering bitterness is enhanced because you have additional components that are going into solution from dry hopping even at colder temperatures. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of kind of rough, uh, you know, breakdown, how much hops of, of a typical recipe might go in hot side versus cold side, uh, for something like amalgamator, roughly a third of the total hops go in on the hot side 
and then two thirds going on the uh, cold side with the dry hop. Some of our newer recipe, uh, newer recipes have kind of shifted a little bit further into that dry hop addition where maybe a quarter of the total hops go in on the hot side and then we'll do uh, three quarters, 75% on the dry hop. When you, and on your hot side hops are, you know, how's that balance between whether it's first wort hopping or early additions or whirlpool additions, where do you find that sweet spot for, you know, pushing, pushing those hot side additions? Well, the answer is it depends and it <laughs> sure, does sure. depend. It does depend on the beer. Yeah. Uh, if I'm going to talk about West coast IPA specifically exclusive of pale ale sure. and exclusive of double IPA, um, for certain beers, I like to create a very saturated wall of flavor that hangs out on your palate for an extended period of time. In that case, with Amalgamator and Citraholic, we have five hop additions on the hot side. Five hop additions. Five, which is probably more than most modern brewers. And some sure, of that sure. is a carryover from my homebrew days. But Amalgamator has first word. Uh, it has a bittering addition. It has two flavor additions in the middle. And then... A moderate whirlpool addition at the end of the boil and then it has uh, roughly two pounds per barrel uh, for the dry hop some maybe newer ipas where we're using newer hop varieties we might focus less on kettle additions and uh, instead skew those hops more towards the dry hop that's interesting um you know in terms of uh some of those later hop additions or, or whirlpooling um are there any specific techniques that you employ in terms of you know timing standing temperature or whatnot to you know add a specific character to some of these so uh again it depends on the beer but something specifically like amalgamator um harkens more back to those original blueprints from beechwood and that uh First word hopping, a uh, couple kettle additions. The whirlpool addition does happen more or less at boiling temperature. So we mm. cut the flame, we spin in those hops hot, and it does capture aroma, but uh, it also captures plenty of flavor. Something like a more modern IPA, uh, like uh, Sim Coast to Coast, which is here's my plug. That's a beer that we're going to be releasing uh, very soon. <laughs> and much like yeah. Hopper Bollock, which, uh, another plug is we just released, uh, over the weekend. Um, those are beers that, uh, we will do less hop additions on the hot side. And then when we send that beer to the whirlpool tank, we'll actually add cold water to it to kind of cool everything down. Right. And then we add our whirlpool hop addition. And that does a couple things. One, uh, the temperature is colder. So not as much of those uh, aromatic components disappear in the vapor while it's resting. And we also, on the same token, don't capture as much bitterness from those hops. So it, it ends up being a more aromatic addition. And then we will go a little bit heavier on the dry hop. So that's a beer that um, presents itself as a, a little bit more hop flavor and, and a lot of hop aroma. And for some maybe more seasoned West coast IPA drinkers, it might not have kind of that lingering bitterness that maybe you're looking for from something like a pizza port IPA or a stone IPA. But for the more modern IPA drinker, it might, it might be a little bit more tempered and, and more up your alley. Yeah. There's a beautiful cohesion to these where the hops flavor holds together and there's a nice balance between some of that softer bitterness and that kind of aromatic component. And it feels big without being overwhelming. Um, yeah. 
are there specific techniques in, in that dry hopping cold side that uh, that you utilize to help maximize that expression without uh, you know without you know creating a kind of ragged burn to these or uh, <laughs> sure know, uh, dealing with I mean that's that's always a thing achieving this intensity without overdoing it and producing vegetal character which no one really finds that pleasant um you know proposes a particular challenge how do you how do you balance through those things so some of that is taken care of with the dry hop but um kind of uh, on the more invisible side a lot of that is uh is carried forward by um our water treatment and with a lot of our west coast ipas they're actually more acidic than people would would believe it. Hmm. So this is something that we kind of borrowed from lager brewing and acidity tempers bitterness and, uh, alkalinity enhances bitterness. And so a lot of, a lot of macro lagers, people don't realize how acidic they are. Uh, and they, they finish very clean and very smooth. Well, you can borrow those techniques and certainly adapt them to IPA brewing. So that was one thing uh, that we've done kind of across the board with our IPAs is we push them in the slightly more acidic direction. That doesn't mean they taste tart and tangy, but functionally what it means is that it, it softens the bitterness and uh, it also allows those flavors to kind of hang out on your palate a little bit more. And so you, you taste the hop flavor without it being obscured by too much bitterness. And then in turn, that allows you to also focus on the aroma. And as far as aroma goes, most of our West Coast IPAs are dry hopped at two pounds per barrel, which is good amount. It's not extreme uh, by any means. Uh, and then we ha also have the ability to kind of resuspend and uh, recirculate our, our dry hops within our beer, which is something that we do at, our, at all of our facilities a couple days after dry hopping. So we ensure that we get the most aromatic extraction out of our hops. How do you balance some of that technical performance when you take those IPAs down to a decently low, um, you know, pH? Well, um, I wouldn't want to overstate how much we're acidifying beers. Okay. We're just, just enough to kind of temper things. We're going, uh, much heavier on acidification with other styles. Sure. Um, but with, uh, West coast IPA, uh, in almost any beer that gets dry hopped, one thing that you see is, uh, is you see quite a substantial rise in pH. Things get more alkaline yeah. after you dry hop them. And so we're trying to kind of combat that up front with the base beer. We're kind of trying to hit a lower pH so that when we dry hop the beer, it doesn't get excessively high, excessively alkaline and excessively mm. harsh. Are there specific, uh, you know, you mentioned recirculating, uh, in terms of time and temperature, where do you find yourself, you know, falling on, on dry hop for time and temperature? Probably on the average to maybe slightly warmer side. So our beers are finished fermenting. Uh, we make sure they, they pass what we call a forced diacetyl test where we were kind of, we'll kind of run it through the rigors and make sure that it's not going to spike any kind of buttery notes, that fermentation is truly complete and that our yeast that is still small amounts remaining in the beer is still healthy. So beer is done fermenting. It's rested. Um, we will get all the yeast out of there and we will drop our temperatures to roughly 60 degrees about seven degrees colder than our fermentation temperature, which is still fairly warm. Yeah. And in general, 
things are more soluble at warmer temperatures. So we dry hop at uh, 60 degrees. And usually after 48 hours, after all the hops have kind of broken up and fallen through the bulk of the beer, that's when we resuspend them. And qualitatively, we saw a, a big bump in aroma when we started doing that a couple of years ago. And then we suspend them. So are you doing that with bubbling CO2 or? Yep. Okay. Yep. CO2. And we actually have a couple cool sanitary sight glasses that we're able to hook up to the top of our fermenters and visually observe our resuspension and kind of see, oh, that, yep, that's working. That's yeah. doing it. <laughs> yeah. So we've done that enough times that we've correlated it to kind of pressures and times. And uh, we'll do the resuspension at, also at 60 degrees, allow a few more days for settling and further aromatic extraction and mixing. And then we will start dumping the hop slurry and cooling the beer down to cellar temperatures, which is basically 32 degrees. And then we will transfer the beer to a bright tank, clarify it, carbonate it. And usually two to three days later is when we'll package it. But... Uh, yeah, we're doing our – typically our West Coast IPAs are on dry hops for seven to nine days. It depends on the beer. It depends yeah. on how much time we happen to have in the tank. But seven days minimum, usually nine days maximum. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about hop combos. You know, certainly earlier on in the conversation you mentioned that a lot of these were driven by what was available and uh, and you started playing with those things. Um, you know, what have, how, how have you settled on on some of these more – favorite kind of consistent hop combos and how do you you know as you are evaluating hops each year especially as there's some range within each of these things and as you select for the ways these are going to work together how do you start to to think about uh, you know how those flavor components in those hops work together and how do you all as a, as a team kind of communicate that amongst yourselves well, um, a lot of that is, uh, you know, thinking about hops as uh, spices. You got salt and pepper. You got a whole bunch of other things in between. And some dishes just need a little bit of salt. And sometimes salt can be incredibly complex and enhancing. And for a beer like Amalgamator or Citraholic, uh, which is its, its uh, counterpart, Amalgamator, the entire dry hop is mosaic. Mosaic is a very complex... Uh, very uh diverse hop that has a, an amalgam of flavors and aromas hence the name i see what you did there and right clever and so mosaic can stand on its own but it also plays well with other hops uh other things like um melrose our original flagship ipa that is driven by amarillo and simcoe that's a beer where i found that uh i got really cool stone fruit from Amarillo in the expression that I like, like lots of peach and apricot. And then Simcoe brought some tropical notes and lots of pine. So I found that those two hops and that flavor combination complemented itself. Sometimes like you don't just need salt, but you need a little bit, bit of pepper. And sometimes we will do three hop, four hop, dry hop combos it, it depends are there are there any hops especially as we see uh, you know new hops reaching the market that you've uh, found a particular connection to or been excited creatively by yes uh quite a few idaho seven is awesome i yeah. think that parallels a lot of mosaic strata has a very unique identity and i'm super excited that now that we're getting through covid we have a lot of that on our contract for next year so uh, look for some Beechwood beers with lots of strata in 2022. Um, I've always been driven to 
really intense flavors and aromas for better or for worse. And one of the newer hop varieties that I really like, you have to use it judiciously, but you can abuse it if you want, is Sabro. And that's kind of like Van Halen with Sammy Hagar. You either love it or you hate it. Even <laughs> sure, though sure. even though Sammy was a much better singer. Yeah. I said it. So I'm going to get some hate mail for that one. Sabro is, is a hop that I think is incredibly flavorful, intense, uh, very expressive, and, and is also able to, like, undercut anything else that it's combined with you if sabro is used in a beer you know it's there and it's made it into the uh, ales for als blend several years in a row and even at five percent it's like yep there's sabro in there which i love um how do you how do you use it uh sabro we use we have used uh as an entire dry hop before as a partial dry hop um, we use it in a lot of hazy IPAs as a whirlpool hop because I think it is a fantastic foundational hop for biotransformation if we want to get into another nerdy subject. So uh, Sabro is very high in a compound called geraniol. And a lot of more recent studies have shown that geraniol gets transformed into super fruity esters and components by certain yeast strains and so it's not uncommon for us to use that in a hazy ipa in the whirlpool to kind of set the foundation to create this really fruity base beer and then when we layer lots of dry hops on top of it even if there's no sabro in the dry hop you've already set up a base beer that's intensely fruity so and that and that is something that we've even done some uh laboratory studies on and we have even experimented with using geraniol terpenes uh, at the very beginning of fermentation instead yeah. of hops and to see, do we get that positive biotransformative effect? And yes, you do. So we That's use fun. Yeah. It's super fun and it's better brewing through science. Talk to me a little bit about using those terpenes. That's, that's, that's kind of fascinating. And when, for you, I mean, I, you're loading the geranium, that kind of, you know, component piece in it through, uh, you know, whirlpool hopping in order to allow, you know, that fermentation to take that, those uh, compounds and, um, transform them. Um, you know, but what, you know, how do you define sensorially, you know, what that does and how, you know, what threshold do you need in order to cause a kind of palpable difference there? Something like biotransformation is still going to be an imperfect process and something, you know, that's, that's not, it's not, just necessarily going to create everything that you want and also creates other elements along with that you know talk to me about how you like find the right amount to kind of you know spice it to that perfect degree well i i think about some of the uh for example new england ipa which is really what's kind of driven us to experiment with terpenes and biotransformation uh at least on the clean side of beers uh, I, I think about some of the better examples that I've had and, and they've had that really intense fruity aroma and, and how do you get that? Can you get that from yeast alone? Can you get that from hops alone? Do you need it in combination and trying lots of different brewing techniques and, and kind of what a lot of, uh, maybe originators of the style were claiming was working for them. And then science kind of following that up and then me following up on the science with that. Oh, okay, so the science is, is indicating that, that geraniol or terpenes are likely driving a lot of these fruity aromatics. Okay, uh, what hops have a lot of geraniol? Oh, Sabro has a lot of geraniol. 
cool. Well, yields on hazy IPA are shit because the, the dry, <laughs> sure, high dry hopping sure. rates. And we don't have a centrifuge. Um, even if we did, the yields would be shit because of the high dry hopping rates. So, hmm, would it be like, is it possible for us to introduce exogenous geraniol, like just by using terpenes? And is that going to get us the same effect? Well, hey, we better dose with geraniol, send that wort sample to a lab, have it analyzed, and then post-fermentation have that analyzed and see what kind of transformation we saw. And lo and behold, we saw... I shouldn't even say lo and behold because it was we were the fairly certain. Predicted it, yeah, we we're fairly certain that we were going to see something, and we did. And uh, ultimately, we liked some of some of the other components that come along with using um, hot pellets and some of the other other things that you get out of the green material. It wasn't purely geraniol was just it was too synthesized it was too clean it didn't quite work for us it was missing a little bit of nuance but what we ended up realizing is that yes geraniol is an essential component for how we brew hazy ipa and setting the foundation for that really big fruit bomb yeah it's funny uh, you know as i've talked about it with other brewers in the past using some of those elements in that fermentation is almost just like using fruit in a fruit beer that um that synthetic or that ex- extract or that terpene alone isn't isn't going to be perceived in the way that humans want to perceive that now but using it in combination with uh you know that real ele- or, or you know actual t90 pellets or whole comb flower hops or whatnot sure. um can help put some points on things and so uh you know it's interesting that uh you know even this fruit beer thing that uh, uh everyone has been into for the last number of years <laughs> so, you know even some of those techniques of blending to build, sure. build these deeper ideas of, of what those flavors are come back even to, to hoppy beers and even with some new products right now uh, especially some that are coming out of new zealand like that stuff called phantasm sure, which is made sure. i believe out of sauvignon blanc grape must if i'm not mistaken out of grape skins yeah grape skins so that's an example of getting a biotransformative compound uh, from another source other than traditional beer ingredients but using it in beer to enhance a character that you're looking for right more right. better brewing through science and then if you can use yeast that helps unlock that even more, uh, especially some of the new yeasts that are popping out to unlock sure. those thiols, then, sure. uh, yeah, you can go full on. Fascinating to see you know, how that works even with uh, unlocking the thiols and malts themselves. But that's something we've talked about in, in other uh, you know, conversations here on the podcast. One thing we haven't talked about in our last hour of talking about IPA is stouts. And yet that is one of the winningest categories for you, especially dark beers, stouts with coffee in them. And so I'd love to, to just dive into that subject quickly before, uh, before sure. we wrap up here. Sure. Um, talk to me. I mean, that, that's been a, a formative and foundational thing from early days of Beechwood, uh, building dark beers, stouts, and especially using coffee in those beers. Talk to me about how that has uh, developed and then evolved for you. Well, uh, it wasn't something that I ever originally sought out to do with Beechwood. It was kind of one of those things that we, you know, after our first year that we were open, somebody said, Hey, how did you develop your stout program? And I said, stout program. We don't even brew a lot of like one, two, three, four, five. Oh shit. (laughs) We have brewed a lot of stouts. Okay. Well, I like dark beer, uh, for, you know, 
a variety of reasons, but again, intensity of flavor and aroma. And I think it's a good way to get a lot of intensity and flavor into not just higher alcohol beers, but even lower alcohol beers. And kind of my, my original relationship with intense flavors and aromas began on a trip to Italy when I was a young teen and I ordered a double espresso. I wasn't much of a coffee drinker then, but I kind of almost did it because I knew my parents would look askance at me when I did that. And I, I put down that cup of double espresso and, uh, they were like, wow, they were kind of impressed, but that level of intensity of flavor and aroma and viscosity that stuck with me. Like this is intense, but this is, I like this. I'm getting a lot out of this. Um, and so that those same kind of sensibilities, uh, and tastes, translated to our stouts but when it comes to coffee beer first coffee beer that we ever brewed at beechwood was called tovarish it is uh, an imperial espresso coffee stout and the first batch that we brewed here our first year in business i actually hand brewed three gallons of espresso at home on my stove into a sanitary <laughs> yeah. uh, food container and, and added that to the beer i will never i, I was like i'm never fucking doing this again it took me several days to brew all three gallons of yeah. espresso yeah fuck that <laughs> so uh the following year one of our uh, a mutual friend of me and gabe came to us with this idea and he said hey i want to do this beer dinner at at beechwood i've been doing this thing kind of at, at various restaurants over the years and it's called dionysus and i'd like you guys to brew an armenian coffee inspired stout and uh at first i thought well you know you're you're crazy if you're going to suggest anything to me about what I do in my brewery. And then I, I said, okay, you know what, if we could, uh, I've, I've had Armenian coffee before many times and it's absolutely delicious and complex. If we can pull this off, it'll be a pretty cool beer. And so that same friend, uh, was, uh, was close to, uh, the owner of Portola coffee, like their second first or second year in business. So that, same friend hooked us up and um i brought a couple beers into uh portola coffee and met with jeff dugan the original the owner of portola coffee and the original roaster and he tasted my beers and said oh, i i see what you're doing here i kind of get this cerebral sense of of your dark beers and i think i know what coffee i could roast that would complement those flavors and so the first collaboration we did together was system of stout which is a really crazy beer because it's a spice beer, it's a wood-aged beer, and it's a coffee beer. And You got uh, all the things. All the things. So it's a big imperial stout that is spiced with cardamom in the kettle, also has a little bit of blackstrap molasses added to it. It's aged on oak chips, um, like Armenian brandy-soaked oak chips, and then it's finally aged on coffee from Portola Coffee Lab, and that came out just beautifully the way that we we'd it exceeded our expectations and then uh we decided that we wanted to start doing more coffee beers and mocha machine was something that came about after drinking beers like um shoot i'm trying to remember the uh ballast point beer that victory, victory at, at sea. sea yeah that was one of the early ones and then even before that Jeff Bagby's Coffee Monster, a very award-winning beer out of Pizza Port Carlsbad. Those were kind of the two that inspired me to create Mocha Machine. And uh, that, was, that was one of those beers that really, I think, captured Beechwood's sensibilities with dark beers, but 
also fully expressed Portola coffee. So you taste that if you know both products really well, you can taste that like that's a Beechwood beer. But Jeff Dugan, the owner of Portola coffee, will have that beer and like, oh, my God, this coffee is expressing itself exactly how a Portola coffee would express itself if I brewed it through our espresso machine, French press, uh, you know, cold drip. And so that was really cool to capture both of those sensibilities and expressions at the same time. And what is it? Uh, you know, yeah. I'm curious about that. Like, what is how would you do that? Like, how would you articulate those that coffee expression and the way that that particular piece comes through in the beer with mocha machines specifically and really all of our coffee beers? I have come to really like natural process coffees which have a much deeper blueberry blackberry component because of how the mucilage is still on the uh, the coffee bean after it's processed so natural process coffees are much fruitier for me and that's the expression that i like to capture in our beers very fruit driven like chocolate covered blueberry and um, the base beers of all of our coffee beers are designed to kind of make room for that too you wouldn't want to drink any of these base beers on their own. Coffee is not an additive. It's an ingredient. So it has to play with everything else in equal proportions in the finished product. That's interesting. So, you know, in kind of practice, what does that mean? What do you tend to bring down in a, a you know, a stout recipe in order to create room for the roast flavors that a coffee is going to bring? So coffee brings roast. It brings a certain type of acidity and it brings fruit components. So in something like Mocha Machine in the base beer, not a lot of roasted malt, not a lot of bitterness because you get roast and bitterness from the coffee. It's a very fruity base beer because we want to enhance that blueberry characteristic. And then even the cocoa nibs that we use in that are sourced from Ecuador, which to my palate are very fruity cocoa nibs. And so that all kind of plays together, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. In terms of uh, extraction, I mean, coffee is an expensive ingredient. And, you know, as many brewers as I've talked to, lots of folks have different approaches to this. Um, You know, but certainly there are trends in the way that people have started to like to use coffee. Um, You know, for you, you what is that kind of addition process generally look like? Well, it's, tell, tell me as much yeah. as you can without your sharing no, 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 all, no, that's all your secrets. That's fine. Yeah. I don't mind because people people do different things at different different breweries. I'm surprised sometimes how many how many techniques some brewers share over the years, and and nobody else ends up using that information. But uh, with Mocha Machine, it's changed over the years, and the hmm. way that we've been doing it for the last couple of years um, is just through the top of the fermenter. So we get coarse ground coffee. Um, uh, from Portola and, uh, it's basically, it's ground not long after it's, it's roasted and rested and we get all the yeast out of the beer. It's done fermenting and we will add it to the top of the tank, usually kind of late in the day or at the end of the day. It's the last thing we do. And usually within 30, 45 minutes, there's a huge coffee component already in the beer. It goes into there immediately. Yeah. And this beer is fully chilled down to usually the low thirties. Coffee goes in at the end of the day. The very next morning, we blow it out the bottom of the tank. So it goes in, it drops out, it's out of there. And the infusion happens really quickly. 
We used to do it in fine mesh sacks in a bright tank where we would transfer the beer into a bright tank with coffee and cocoa nibs in the fine mesh sack. And then we would transfer it to another bright tank for clarification and carbonation. We've since gotten away from that, not just because it's labor intensive, but because we believe these newer techniques that we're using make a better beer. Sure. Sure. Um, are there any other, uh, you know, kind of special considerations when you're using a sensitive ingredient like coffee that you want to express that you want to get the value out of, um, and you want, you know, consumers to connect with as they, as they taste it. So my, my motto is treat everything as an ingredient and treat nothing as an additive. You can't simply take an amazing stout and add coffee to it and think that, oh, I've got this perfectly balanced stout. I'm going to add coffee on top of it. Don't add anything on top of anything. Add something with. And even with our barrel-aged beers, uh, there are certain components that are augmented or diminished in order to make room for that barrel character. So treat everything as an ingredient. Treat nothing as an additive. That's my advice. Do you, how do you, I mean, and you, it's, it's one thing to say that, and it's another thing to, you know, work in a brewing software as you're trying to create a recipe that a production team can actually replicate. Um, and that software doesn't have uh, a just for the barrel character or uh, the roast component that, you know, coffee might add to that. Do you, are you, well, how do you do that mental math? Like, you know, and, and kind of as you're writing recipes, think about what that's going to contribute and how that fits in that overall. Some of that is driven by experience. A lot of it is sure. uh, developing those, uh, those, um, sensibilities when it comes to prediction and correlation, but I would encourage any brewer who's kind of trying to dabble in, in something like this, uh, whatever stout you have on tap at your, your pub, you know, and you've brewed and, and you know what percentage of roast malt is in there, grab a pint of that and add, uh, you know, like a teaspoon or a tablespoon of coffee grounds to it and let it settle through and see what that does to the flavor and the aroma and the mouthfeel. Like, oh, does that work? Oh, it works, but it's too roasty. Oh, okay. Well, I know this beer was, I know this stout that I experimented with was 6% roast barley. Maybe if I want to make a coffee beer, it should be 4% roast barley. So I think there are kind of uh, easy ways to get general baselines for stuff like that. Are there some other malts that you boost up in order to kind of bring forward some of those fruitier flavors and some of the coffee flavor sometimes but uh in in general we uh like in mocha machine we we dial up more of the caramel malts we dial back the roast malts significantly it's not a very roasty beer and if you tasted the base beer for that which we bill as an imperial porter it really tastes like kind of a like a fucked up doppelbach (laughs) The base beer. Very few people have actually yeah. had that base beer. It doesn't yeah. exist on its own. Sure, sure. Um, you know how, for example, does the you know residual the finishing gravity you know change for a beer like that, where coffee is going to be a big piece of the ro- of of that roast component versus uh, a stout that wouldn't use coffee in it. For something like Mocha Machine, I do want it to have a lot of body and residual sweetness to boost that chocolate, coffee, flavor, and aroma component. Uh, and so that's a beer that usually finishes, for the homebrew world, usually finishes around 1026 to 1028. Mm. So not a low finishing gravity. No, no. But that helps support all those flavors and aromas that are there. For something, uh, for some of our 
lighter coffee beers, if you will, which would be something like Pablo, which is a uh, Colombian coffee uh, nitro porter, which is really more of kind of like a brown ale, the base beer. Yeah. That would finish closer to 10, 16 or 10, 18, but that's a lighter beer. It's easier drinking. Sure. Sure. Um, but in general, our coffee beers are, are fairly hefty. Coffee is not a light duty flavor. Right, right. And so while plenty of people are able to pull off uh, lower alcohol coffee beers well, I, I like them to be more substantial. That's my personal taste. Sure, sure. Well, we've done our duty and talked about brewing and your approaches to brewing, but let's zoom out here as we finish and talk about that bigger picture for Beechwood. Sure. Um, you guys have been at it for a decade uh, what's, what's the big picture goal for Beachwood? What does success look like for you all? And, uh, when will you know if you've achieved it or have you achieved it? Ooh, uh, one of the things that, uh, I, I never thought about when, when we opened the brew pub is really where we would end up. I thought we would never can beer. We would never bottle beer. We would, I would be brewing everything with an assistant for the, until the end of time just to be served over the counter and maybe a handful of local accounts would get our beer on draft. But as Beechwood has grown out of necessity and organically, I've been able to hire people and experience amazing help. And help equals resources. And so really as Beechwood continues to, to grow, as I hope it continues to grow, what's my ultimate goal? To be able to get a company to the size where it can afford as many resources as it wants, where everybody gets to do the things that they're good at. And nobody is overburdened with, with, uh, any tedium. And that's kind of where I ultimately want to get is where I can, I can focus on the things that I'm super passionate about and really good at, and maybe even get to focus on things that I never had time for before. So that's my ultimate goal with Beachwood is to grow it to the point of where it, it has all the resources for all the creative autonomy and efficiency it wants and needs. Well, that sounds like a nice place to wrap it up. We did not get into the secrets of metal guitar riffs. <laughs> Next time, I have no so, secrets. So I think, well, yeah. we may. Other than vibrato, that's where it's at. <laughs> GD Chillers knows that good enough just won't cut it. Set your compass by Roar North Star Pills. Try fruit juice concentrates from Old Orchard. The Alchemator from Pro Brew simplifies brewing non alcoholic beer and make your system 100% food safe with Clarion Lubricants. Of course, if you would like to support this very podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com. Click on that subscribe button. If you're a pro brewer, consider our all access pro subscriptions. They combine magazines along with exclusive online content, video classes, and all of that fun stuff. That's beerandbrewing.com. Um, Julian, if people want to learn more about Beachwood, where do they find you? Uh, beachwoodbrewing.com. Instagrams, Twitters? Sure, sure. Instagram is Beachwood Brewing. Uh, Twitter is also Beachwood Brewing. And we have additional handles with uh, Beachwood Barbecue and then Beachwood Blendery. And so those are those are fairly easy to find. So well, we're going to wrap up here. Going to try to drink a little bit more amalgamator before we uh, shut this down and I and I hit the road. But uh, I appreciate you talking to me about brewing. Cheers, Jamie. It was an honor. Thanks for having me on. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. 
Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.